Sean Bear would tell me uh, most weeks uh, that the job of a CEO is to figure out just as much of what to say yes to as what to say no to. And I don't think I really ever quite comprehended what he meant until um, I had this chair. But this job every day is about making difficult choices with imperfect information where you have to say yes or no to something you can't say to your team or to clients or to investors get back to me next week, or I'm not quite sure, ask again. That's not the option set. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Schmalik Fishman, co-founder and CEO of Argyle, a company building a user consent-based platform for employment data, helping people avoid situations where their personal information is sold or used without their consent or knowledge. Founded in 2018 as a remote-first company, Argyle's product now covers over half a million U.S. employers, almost 100% of gig workers, and over 170 million U.S. workers. They've also raised a total of $80 million from SignalFire, Bain Capital Ventures, Bedrock, Checker, and many more. In this episode, we discuss what does it mean to be a CEO? Schmalig is a second-time founder, but a first-time CEO. What changed and what has he learned in the process? Importance of user permission services. Why it's good for business to ask users for data sharing consent and how the world is moving in this direction across every single vertical. Building a remote company. Why they decided to build Argyle remotely since inception in 2018. What they've learned in the process and why they would not be able to replicate their success with an in-office culture. Why it's crucial to lead with laughter. And the only way to get through challenging jobs is by building a culture where you can smile, laugh, joke, and make fun of each other, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Schmalik from Argyle. Well, Schmalik, thank you for joining us and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Uh, We are maybe a few blocks away from each other, mm-hmm. but we're still doing this remotely yep. in New York. That's right. How, how's it going today? I'm doing well. Uh, it's, a, it's a Tuesday, but it feels like a Monday. I'm ready to go. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling energized as well. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's hear a bit about your background. Uh, you, you are a serial entrepreneur. Uh, Argyle is not your first company. Uh, let, let's hear a little sure. bit about, about you for, for the audience, and then we can dive in to talk about Argyle. So that's correct. I, this is my third uh, startup, first time CEO, uh, second time co-founding, second time on a board. Uh, so um, uh, falling without a parachute, uh, it, but that's just the way I like it. Uh, for As far as I can remember, I've been fascinated by uh, networks, and uh, the last three jobs that I've had. The first was in advertising where the network was several hundred thousand websites and brands like Coca-Cola 
um, or Nintendo trying to gain access to those websites for distribution. So very fragmented supply side, very fragmented demand side. Uh, the company following that was in fleet management, um, hundreds of thousands of auto repair shops, dealerships, airports. So very fragmented supply side. And then the demand side is also fragments again. Um, anybody that manufactures a car, anybody that loads a car on and off of a truck. So, so uh, again, demand and supply have to network with each other. And Argyle is yet another network at its core. On the supply side, there are millions and millions of employers that pay individuals. And on the demand side, there are financial institutions that need income data in order to make credit decisions. So millions on both sides. And uh, Argyle is providing the infrastructure to transact. So if an auto dealership wants to lease a vehicle to Sarah that works at Starbucks, uh, that auto dealership can review Sarah's uh, income data with her permission and transact on Argyle's network. Uh, For some reason, I'm a glutton for punishment and I like uh, lassoing up millions and millions of nodes on networks. That seems to be my thing. (laughs) Yeah, and and I want to kind of dive in on, on a thing you mentioned. And you, you, you said that you're a first-time CEO, yet you're a third-time founder. Second-time founder, dif- yeah. Oh, second-time, sorry. Sure. So what, what is different versus the previous time where you were not the CEO? Right? What, what did you learn and what, you know, kind of, what have you experienced as this, Gosh, as, I've, this new CEO role? I've been... <laughs> completely fortunate that uh, that there have been mentors around me that have given me so many good uh, lenses to look at business from, and I c- couldn't possibly go through all of them. One that sticks with me so much as I'm uh, first MCO is something Sean Baer, um, who I co-founded uh, Stratton with the previous company. Sean Baer would tell me uh, most weeks uh, that the job of a CEO is to figure out just as much of what to say yes to as what to say no to. And I don't think I really ever quite comprehended what he meant until I had this chair. But this job every day is about making difficult choices with imperfect information where you have to say yes or no to something you can't say to your team or to clients or to investors. Get back to me next week or I'm not quite sure. Ask again. That's not the option set. You need to say yes, no, prioritize, deprioritize. Uh, and people are looking to you to, to have that answer because they don't have it themselves. Um, and you got to say something. Uh, and I, I really take that with me wherever I go because you're going to be wrong. I'm going to say yes to things we should say no to and no to things we should have said yes to. But it's the bias to be willing to stand up and take a stand for something. Um, and I really appreciate that that I was able to get that early on. Yeah, I had one of my guests was Martin Escobari, who's the CEO at General Atlantic. Yeah. Before that role, he was a, an entrepreneur himself in, in Brazil, and he was kind of contrasting the two different roles, saying entrepreneurs, you have to make exactly what you said, multiple yeah. decisions with imperfect information, right. several decisions a week. Oh, yeah. Whereas a, an investor is just a few decisions a year, but you have a lot more information yep. and also, you, you know, you can't get it as wrong because it's almost impossible to correct. Yeah. Whereas you can correct within a few days. I think that's so right. I think I think that's the, the exact nuance of it. It's the willingness to make a choice and also the willingness to know that the choice you made could have been wrong and then correct it um, and not being scared to make the wrong choice, right? That's the bias reaction component. It's a 
if you can get in the mindset of it, it works, but it's hard to take that leap of faith as a leader. Let's talk a bit about employment verification systems and and processes. Maybe take us through the Argyle story. Who are your customers and you know, where are you today? Sure. So fair warning, three and a half years ago, if you would have asked me what is income verification or what the industry calls a VOIE run um, or how a credit report works, I would have been like, I don't know, bro, you're going to need to ask someone else. So I came to this very much um, as a blank slate, as very much an outsider. Of all things, our original concept uh, was to autofill job applications. Uh, We thought that if you could fill out a job application with first name and last name, home address, how long you've worked at your previous employer, that that would get you to finish the application because you're not having to manually input information you've done 50, 100, 200 times in your life. No one wants to type in their home address again. What has become so interesting uh, while we've been building up this this company um, is that virtually every thing you buy in society starts with the same basic application. And if you just remember the last time you rented an apartment or perhaps you got a mortgage or you got a credit card or you got a loan, um, you tried to rent a car, um, you could keep going. Uh, job application is another one. And all of those instances, you're asked for your first name and your last name and your social security number and your home address and your current employer. A lot of times you're asked to upload your pay stubs and your W-2. Um, This is the repetitive process that everyone in society just does. It's happening today. And on the other end of these applications today, um, there are phone banks and op centers and credit bureaus that tabulate our information. Is this person really residing at this address? Is this person really employed by Starbucks? And there are all of these back office uh, computations that run in order to deliver these, uh, these bits of information to... Uh, a financial service provider today. This is what's happening. The part that we're adding on to it is saying, instead of having to go around the internet and ask a bunch of third parties and ask a credit bureau and review pay stub information, instead of doing all of that, how about you just get the data from the person that is trying to get that financial service? Sarah at Starbucks actually has all of her income information herself. She logs into a a system called id.starbucks.com. She has it. No need to go ask a credit bureau, spend $50, $70, $100 to to get this information. It's there. It's available. Um, And with the advent of computers and the internet, you now no longer need to use all these third parties. You can just actually go direct to Sarah and extract this information with her consent. Very similar to what happens all the time now in the banking industry. If somebody wants to validate that you really have a bank account or that there's really $100 in that bank account or that um, you know, you're really making monthly payments to an auto dealership through that bank account, that's now easy. MX, Fiserv, Finicity, Plaid, all do just that. What's missing is that same computation, uh, but, but for income data, for validating, are you really employed by Starbucks? And that's the that's the I guess the 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 nuance of the ad that's that Argyle is bringing to the market. Something that you, I guess differentiates you and that you have talked about uh, or written about, I've seen, uh, is the user yeah um, permission yeah aspect, right? And you 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 know where I'm going with this, but like may, maybe talk a bit about that, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an important aspect. Whether we think it's good business or not, 
or we agree with it or not morally, what is going to take place over the next 10, 20, 30 years is that individuals are going to control every element of their data and who can access it. That's just what's going to happen. Um, what is blockchain and crypto and Web3? But exactly that. It's saying I get to decide where my information goes and who has access to it and how it's transported. So that's happening globally across every single vertical. It has nothing to do with fintech. But in fintech specifically, we prompt users all the time to access a certain data element, to log into a specific site, to have their consent to share information with somebody else. These are forms of user permission services. Uh, when you see a screen that says, do you consent to sharing your data with Mint.com or to Venmo? That's a user permission service. What isn't as prevalent, unfortunately, is that when people are reviewing income data, how much money did you make last year? Who is your employer? Um, how many hours did you work? Those type of questions. That doesn't have user permissioning yet at its core. This, this data is uh, purchased by third parties, transferred around a lot without your consent or your knowledge. And what Argo is doing is saying, just like in all these other use cases, a screen needs to say, you're about to share your Starbucks data, your Target data with a certain financial institution. Do you consent? For what duration? Indefinitely? For a month? For a day? Um, that is what user permissioning is, that, a, that an individual gets to actually have an affirmative decision around this. And what we've found is that adding in these, uh, these consent screens, while at the outset you're like, well, that's an extra screen, an extra button, so it's going to reduce conversion, it actually does the exact opposite. Users on the internet want to feel as though they're uh, providing permission to somebody to look at information. And when they're able to make that affirmative choice of, yes, I consent, their NPS score actually goes up. Their desire to interact with that application goes up because they feel like they have a relationship, they have trust with, with that application. And so a lot of what we do with clients is coach them through, this screen is actually a good thing for your business, not for Argyle, but for, for your auto dealership, for your loan uh, processing company, for your mortgage underwriting operation. This actually is going to help build better trust, better conversion, better outcomes for your users. Um, and so business aside, I think that uh, user permission services are the future um, and are morally the right thing to do as an industry. A, a lot of businesses feels like they don't do it because they're afraid they're going to lose clients yes. to it. Right? Exactly. But you're saying it's the opposite. Yes. I'm, uh, what we're finding with data um, is that you actually retain users more when you give them screens to control their information. Because then they have a relationship with you that is trusting. They're like, oh, that business lets me control my data. I want to partner with them. I want to have a long-term relationship with them. And think about the opposite of it. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be the first person to put Facebook on blast. Um, but when you ask users about their relationship with Facebook, it's pretty negative at this point. They use the service because they have to. But they don't have a positive connotation uh, with Facebook. Why is that? A lot of it has to do with all of these news reports everywhere about how Facebook resells your data. And when you log into Facebook, you do not see a user permission screen. And there's a correlation there. Yeah, you, I think you have to click through 10 different screens to get to data control at yep. Facebook. One person of all, of all, you know... Of the entire fintech universe, this uh, I would have not expected this person to be talking about it. 
uh, because he's not a fintech junkie, and I'm talking about John Oliver. Sure, uh, he he had a bit of a uh, data protection, right? And, did. and you were actually commenting about it on on Twitter. Um, just uh, your uh, what I read about your your tweet was you're saying that we need better data protection and, and privacy laws, right? Have you seen any countries do this? in a way that you feel is is accurate, is correct? There are frameworks that are out there that are definitely best in class, given the options set today. I think CCPA and GDPR are models for the future. There's a lot of nuance in them that perhaps is not the best for consumers or for businesses. That's a conversation for another podcast. But at the core of those is actually something very similar to what HIPAA says. Um, it takes 800 pages, but at the core of all these pieces of legislation is I control data, I can demand it be deleted, I can demand that it stop being shared, um, I, can, I can actually stipulate that there are errors in it and that you can correct it. These are sort of basic um, human data governance rights that you're seeing matriculate across all these different uh, pieces of legislation. What I think is important uh, regardless of, of the exact way the law is written, again, is that consumers can know what is being shared and can turn it on and off. And with that at the core, I think you're going to have a ton of gain. Um, legislation moves slowly, but I, what I want to be able to uh, stand for is that anybody that transports their income data with Argyle, they made the decision to do that. It did not happen without their knowledge or without their consent. Gotcha, gotcha. Let's... Um... Talk a bit about your company yeah. culture and processes. Sure. I, I was reading a, a bit of the statements and commentary of your own investors. And one thing that stood out is uh, they're, they're proud of your pace of business execution and technical iteration. Yeah. Right. Obviously, this is for a tech business, that's exactly what you want. Um, maybe uh, tell us how, how you've built the company culture and and how do you drive execution sure. throughout uh, the business? We have a, uh, as all uh, tech companies, and I think as most businesses at this point, we all have core values, and Argyle has them as well. Uh, the core value that I think speaks to this innovation concept is um, we have a uh, we, we say to each other, make new mistakes. A lot of new ones, not the same ones. Don't make the same. Don't make a mistake somebody else just made last week, but new ones. Please make new ones. Please document the mistake so everybody can learn about your mistake. We love new mistakes. Um, and being able to repeat that and say, oh, that was a mistake we made. Great, we found a new mistake. Uh, creates a culture where people feel uh, empowered to do things, empowered to make choices, empowered to show their work, and feel fine when it doesn't work out correctly. Great, we discovered something. It's a good thing. Um, How do you make sure the whole company knows about it? Yeah, so uh, this goes. This is part of um, living remotely or working remotely. We are ferocious documenters. Um, I'm, we talk a lot about Notion. We use Notion for everything. Um, all the uh, all of our board meetings happen in Notion. All of our recruiting happens in Notion. Our bug tracker is in Notion. Our roadmap is in Notion. Our budgeting system is in, everything is in Notion. Super users. Yes, and. Um, everything in Notion is uh, open to everyone at Argyle. There are some small nuances where, yes, um, does salaries need to be kept private? Of course. 
But other than the few things that do, everything is defaulted to transparent. And this means that um, when you're on, like we do onboarding in Notion, and the first thing we show people is all these different, um, you know, here's the finance section, here's the sales section, here's the marketing section, here's the bug tracker. Um, and this creates an environment where people want to be inquisitive and want to learn and want to get updates. Um, and so just as a course of doing that, you know, after every meeting or after every decision, there's a place to document what choices were made, who was involved in those choices. And people do swarm on that. People come in and are like, oh, that's cool. We made this choice. Let's move forward with it. Oh, we're prioritizing this specific feature or this client vertical. Great. Um, and it just kind of snowballs from there in this really positive way. Uh, and so I'm, uh, as you can tell, we're big notion believers, a big documentation believers. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned that you guys are remote. You've been remote since day one, which is by the way, pre pandemic yeah. for, for the audience. Um, maybe talk about that and the intentionality that you need sure. to have for, you know, a, a remote environment to work and, and why, why do it remotely? So what Audrey's, uh, my co-founder and CTO, um, says is that he, he relates this to uh, microservices or a monolith. And he says that when you start a company, you make this choice. Uh, do you, are you building a monolith or are you building a microservice? And if you're building a monolith, everybody's going to come to this one office. And this one office, this one floor is where everybody is at. Um, and at some point, if you, if you run out of space, you're going to have to get a second floor. And now you have two monoliths. You have floor one and you have floor two. And these two floors are separate. And then you're going to have a floor in Chicago, right? And so now you're going to have the satellite office and the main office, right? So you have the monolith and then the satellites off to the side. And the company just is built that way. And it's, I think it's very difficult for companies that are built as a monolith or built as, um, uh, as an office at their core to shift to remote because that's just not how it's, uh, that's not how it's constructed. But if you start with microservices by default, where everyone is in their own space, it means that you're building a team that has to operate with microservices. Everyone needs to coordinate with each other. There isn't this idea of proximity to the executive team or proximity to the CEO. Everyone has to use the same uh, transaction lines, the same conversation lines, the same tools. Everyone has just as much access. And if you start that way, and that's what we were lucky enough to be able to do, as you keep building 50 people, 100 people, 150 people, we're at 170 now, you just keep on building more microservices. Um, and we've just been very lucky to have it start that way and so it can keep compounding that way. Um, I don't know, I, I definitely don't envy the people that are having to shift to remote because there's, there's a lot of disjointedness. And at the same time, if somebody asked us to reconstruct the company around core offices, I don't know if we would be successful at it because we're just not built that way. And then that means you have employees all over the world? We have em case? Yeah, we have employees in 21 uh, different countries. I think we're in all but two time zones. Uh, and for a while, what we were doing at this scale, just we, we now have a, a four-person recruiting team and uh, Rachel, who heads it up, is doing amazing work. But for a good period of time at the beginning, um, we hired somebody, and the question we asked them was, who are the three people you've worked with in the past that you'd love to work with again? That's our recruiting list. Um, that worked for That's a period genius. of time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Um, it was also really great for onboarding, because when, when it was your first day at Argyle, you knew some other people here, and so you weren't the first person. Um, and that just created a great onboarding experience. 
at some level of scale, you can't keep doing it that way. Um, but yeah, that's how we started out. Love it. Love it. And, and I guess, um, you know, now that you've been at it for almost four years at Argo, what have been some of the most surprising things yeah. that you've learned in this, in this process? I didn't appreciate how deeply paper was ingrained in uh, credit decisioning flows. So much of our world uh, has become so digital and you walk around with a phone in your pocket and everything feels very on the internet. But when you start talking to financial service providers, big and small, new and old, um, regulated and unregulated, you find that the world is really run on paper. Everyone is still using PDFs. Everyone. And I'm not even making a value-based decisions. Even uh, financial service providers that use tech platforms that are homebrew, at the end of the credit process or the uh, lending process, the mortgage process, they print out the application and put it in a vanilla folder for storage purposes and compliance purposes. Everything's still actually on paper when you talk about credit decisioning. And so much of what Argyle is doing is just digitizing an analog methodology. We're just taking what was what was happening through fax machines um, and handwriting and emailing with attachments, and we are digitizing those workflows. But it's the same data set, the same the same actual ops flow, just uh, no printers involved. <laughs> yeah, I, we we talked a bit offline, and I, I shared that I spent some time in the operations and technology department of a of a big bank. Yeah, and it was a a bunch of just fax machines. It is, you know, old, it is old paper. And you know what I just learned that uh, in Germany, apparently, you have to read the con not not only print it but read it out loud. Yep. You know, before yep. it's signed. So that's a, a, a different level. As a student of history, there are parts of this analog process that make a ton of sense. I still think it should be 100% digital, but um, people needed to have assurance that their docs were actually securitized and stored somewhere physically. That had a sense of like, okay, you're a reputable organization, you're storing my docs. Um, and that's where a lot of this comes from, this, this notion of trust or this notion of security. And um, before the last 10 years, that was the best security known to man, to print it out, to store it in a folder. That was security. And so there's, there's a reason why these things exist. It's not because everybody was like, intentionally trying to make things really complicated. That was the best solution for the time. And I think a lot of what fintech is trying to do is just upgrade solutions now that there's a new class of technology. Sure, like one of the... Posts that I read from you that I, I really liked. I think it's called "Lead with Laughter." Laughter. Yeah, right, right. Um, I, I thought it was great. I, I interviewed in the past a couple times actually um, Greg Krasnov, who's the CEO of Tonic, one of the largest new banks in mm-hmm. in, in the in the in Southeast Asia in the Philippines. Yep. And one of their core values is sense of humor mm-hmm. for people that they're okay. bringing on and. You know, so I think you guys would, would uh, kind of understand each other. But tell us a bit more about, about this concept. These jobs are brutal. They're brutal. For, it's brutal for me. It's brutal for the team. It's really long hours. It's very hard days. We are going up the hardest mountain. All the chips are stacked against us uh, from every angle. And yet there are a class of startups. Uh, there are a class of, of tech companies that prevail 
that make it to the mountaintop that have an impact. And it seems to me that the companies that are doing that are ones where the internal team is really close-knit and legitimately enjoys working with their, their peers. Not fake enjoying, but actually like it. Um, and we have that going on in Argo. I like waking up early in the morning and getting on the phone and debating ideas. It's fun. It's intellectually stimulating. And that happens because we can smile and laugh and joke and make fun of each other, make fun of our business, make fun of mistakes that we made, make fun of product that we were thinking about. Like, oh, why were we thinking this nine months ago? This is silly. Um, and the ability to do that, both as an executive team, as a leader, as an individual contributor, it just is the best medicine to being willing to put up with it for another day. Because these are difficult jobs. If you want an easy job, there's a bunch of easy jobs out there. This is not one of them. And the way that I've been able to get people to stay, enrich themselves, participate, be engaged, is to make people laugh and to make people enjoy and take pride in what they're doing. Um, and if that means that you have to make fun of me a little bit along the way, I encourage it. Can't take yourself too seriously, right? That's definitely right. That's definitely right. <laughs> So what what's next? Uh, what's your vision for for Argyle? Say you know, three five years from. I'm now? a very long termist. Uh, so there's this is I think a ten year twenty year journey to remake credit decisioning um, globally, not just in, in in North America. And it does seem that across all those different verticals we were talking about, income data is the core of issuing a product, issuing a service, coming up with a, a loan term. And that does require all these different income databases. The IRS says there are 250,000 of them, just in the United States. All these income databases need to be linked in or uh, connected into our system. And that is going to take years and years to do. And there's the typical type of income databases like ADP and Workday, but there's also income databases that people don't talk about as much. TikTok is not income that I make, but it is income to somebody. Uh, Patreon is income to somebody. There are a lot of alternative types of income that should be sitting at the same level um, as um, you know, Lockheed Martin or Google income. Um, and as we move forward, I do think that uh, there's going to be a lot more Patreon income than there is going to be ADP income. Or the way I, I say it um, to clients is if you're looking for more Don Draper jobs, you've come to the wrong place. Every year, there are less Don Draper jobs and more Uber jobs. That's the direction things are going. Um, and that means that we need to be building for the future, and we need to be programming into these new types of income databases. Um, in addition to that, I, I, I do think that um, while we're very proud of the programmatic infrastructure we built, and we think everything should be 100% digital, most things are still on paper. Um, and so we also need to be programming in to paper use cases. If there's a use case where a client wants to upload a pay stub or upload a W-2. If there's a use case where that needs to be OCR'd for some reason, if there's a use case where a social security number needs to actually go into a credit bureau and then data needs to come out, we need to be powering those use cases as well. Um, we can't be my myopic and just say it's our way or no way. Uh, there are many different ways to validate income, and we should be powering all of them. So I would, I think that... Um, you know, we, we released the uh, our document for OCR feature earlier this year. We're going to build upon that a lot this year. And we're going to be adding other uh, verification methods as well, either powered by us or powered by somebody else. Um, because regardless of how you run your workflow, we want you to be able to do that on Argyle stack. One of the things that I, I know you like to do 
is kind of mentor the next generation of entrepreneurs. And I know you also do this through small yeah. angel checks, uh, where we're co-investors yeah. in Palenka, for example, uh, who, that they're, they're yeah. doing what our girl is doing, but in, in Latin America. Um, what, what do you like to share with, with entrepreneurs that come asking for, for a little bit of wisdom and advice? I like to share with them the things that I do wrong. That seems to be what sticks the most. Uh, and I'm very lucky that, that there are so many other firms, both in America and not in America, that are uh, building similar companies that have similar problem sets where I can be of value, um, where uh, the questions that are asked are something that I've actually personally been through and I'm not just diatribing about my opinion on something. I can be like, oh yeah, Argyle dealt with that several months ago. Here's how, here's how we worked through it. Take some learnings from it. Um, so I... I like to be able to mentor uh, uh, entrepreneurs in subject matter that I'm actually knowledgeable on. If you were coming to me um, and asking about how to run an IPO process, I'm not the right person for you. Um, if you're coming to ask about what it would be like to uh, build an in-work culture or in-office culture, I'm not the right person for you. Uh, but there's a set of subject matter as a result of just my work at Argo where I can be useful to others. And that's what I like to optimize for. And uh I tend to take the sense that while there's a lot that goes on in media and in PR and in the news about pitting one entrepreneur against the other and saying, this company has to win for this company to fail, um, I really do think that all of us are pretty much the same size in relative terms. We're all trying to compete, not really with each other, but really with entrenched interests that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years um, all the competitors that you could put up against Argyle, we're not really competitors. Equifax is the competitor. And the more that I can talk that way and I can communicate with other entrepreneurs that way, the more we can lower down the temperature a little bit and actually share with each other and learn from each other and build with each other. And that's what I try to do when, when I'm um, writing an angel check or I'm coaching somebody else or somebody's asking for advice. It's not a zero-sum game. It is not. It is very much not. Yeah, yeah, and and is that because you've also gotten uh, mentorship and advice from folks along the way? Um, does anyone come to mind that has been influential in your career? I've surely gotten advice on competitors, um, and Toby at Adapt TV would say uh, quite often uh, that he refuses to talk about competitors as if they don't exist. Uh, the only thing we know about is Adapt TV. We're building Adapt TV. Like, that's what we're building. We're going to talk about Adapt TV. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that as well, that if you're constantly looking left and right and trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, um, you're never going to be focusing on yourself and you should just be focusing on the business that you have control over. You have no control over your competitor's business, zero. But I think a lot of this learning about how I think about other people in the market has to do with just trying it the other way a lot. You can spend as much time as you want talking shit um, and trying to come up with the differences between companies. It doesn't do anything. I used to do it all the time, and it might make you feel better for a few fleeting moments. But at the end of it, like you have to build your company and you have to be talking about your business. Um, and so I, I think it's from me spinning my wheels so much um, th trying it the other way and not being successful that I've come to this way of thinking about it, of, of the non-zero-sum game. Shmolek, fantastic conversation. Uh, yeah, I've I enjoy this. Yeah, me too. Very, very much so. And, and I'm glad we, we got this done. I'm, I'm excited yeah. 
the, the audience is going to love it for sure. And, and thank, thanks so much. Uh, going to be, well, oh, go, go ahead. <laughs> I said, we'll have to co-invest in some other, in some other venture. Yes, that, that will happen. <laughs> I, I have no doubt. Uh, but yeah, th- thanks again. C- congrats on everything you. you are building uh, at Argyle. And, and I'm, I'm really excited to just keep uh, watching the, the rocket ship. Thank you. That's great. I, I appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Shmalik, co-founder of Argyle. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 